The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-, post-, yet still very racial America. You can say all that or just call us about race. All three in the same room from the Panoply Studios in New York. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author of How to Be Black, with my co-hosts Raquel Cepeda, author of Bird of Paradise, How It Became Latina, and Tanner Colby, author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange Story of Integration in America. We're going to start with a round of status updates. Tanner, what's your status update? Uh, I actually just got an email as we walked in. My book, Some of My Best Friends Are Black, was uh, amazingly picked up for the ninth grade curriculum at the Raytown School District in Kansas City. You can influence young minds. I know. Sadly, that's very strange. <laughs> So it's currently being taught to several several hundred ninth graders, and I just got an email from the teacher uh, yeah. about where they are uh, in the process. And um, so we'll see once they're done with the book, how it comes out, what they learn, and, and what we learn from them. That is really exciting and terrifying news uh, at the same time. Congratulations. Thank Seriously. you. Uh, and what about you, Raquel? What's your status well, update? I've been kind of like in the studio editing, putting things together for okay. my film, and I just finished a second of three animated sections, which for me was a big feat uh, with Flickr Lab. So I'm really excited. It's called my How Does Ancestral DNA Work piece in a very palatable, non-scientific yeah. way. So I'm excited. Pushing forward. Explaining science with animation. Thank you. Helping us break that down. When is this film coming out? You referenced your film. Oh, I'm hoping that we finish. It's a documentary and yeah. it's not about anything salacious or debasing in our community. So it takes a little longer to <laughs> raise money and make. Yeah. But we're hoping um, to finish at the end of the fall. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in my neighborhood, neck of the woods, I'm performing in Los Angeles. I'm actually going to be on a stage there again soon, uh, April 19th for Pop-Up Magazine which is happening in downtown, and it's like a live magazine storytelling uh, event. It's going to be good. Uh, I also, in a weird category, I've been having a text message exchange with the kid who hacked my Facebook account. <laughs> How's that going? It's, um, it's surprisingly well. Like He reached out to me after successfully hacking me, and we're just we're having like a really great conversation. As, it, as the situation unfolds, I may provide more status updates on this status update situation with this kid. With bated breath. Um, so that's it. Let's uh, run down the topics we're going to get to today. Uh, here's what we got in store. First, it's the latest, uh, almost certainly, well, definitely certainly, not the last shooting of an unarmed black man by law enforcement. This time, the victim's name is Walter Scott, 50 years old, uh, in a routine traffic stop in North Charleston, South Carolina, killed by Officer Michael Slager. Everything was captured on video this time, and the officer has been charged with murder and fired. He's in jail. Is this time going to be any different? Is this the tipping point? Do we dare to begin to hope that black lives might actually matter? Uh, next, we're going to get to Kendrick Lamar's recent announcement that he's engaged to his longtime girlfriend. A moment mostly of celebration for someone's life has been met with super shade and hate over social media, firestorm set off by self-proclaimed dark-skinned activists. A lot of spirited discussion. Uh, Whitney Alford is Kendrick's fiance, is a black woman of quite fair complexion, 
But this angry critic, Rashida Strober, is calling Lamar a hypocrite, fake conscious, and a bunch of other nasty words for marrying a light-skinned woman. So colorism, alive and well. We're going to talk about that in hip-hop and elsewhere. And finally, Vijay Chokal Ingham, brother of TV star Mindy Kaling, has made some headlines of his own. He was a young man of mediocre talents and Indian-American heritage who decided to apply to medical school while pretending to be black. He got admitted. Now he's making a big deal about it in a book that he's pitching all over the Internet. Lots of interviews. It's the scathing indictment of affirmative action, which he calls legalized racism. Is it? Is it not really? We're going to talk about that. And finally, we'll wrap things up with our tips and recommendations, something we like to call, yo, check this out. Uh, For those of you interested in being a part of our national conversation about conversations about race, find us on Twitter and Facebook at Show About Race or on the open internet at showaboutrace.com. Send your thoughts, your tweets, your comments, your love, your hugs, your emoji. We want to hear them and see them all. We want you to be a part of this show. All right, so let's get into the ugliness. The murder of Walter Scott. Uh, we, we see this very long, very sad video uh, of Officer Mike Slager firing eight times, uh, five hitting this man in the back in North Charleston, South Carolina, after a routine traffic stop for a busted taillight. So there's a lot of logistical details to run through that most of our listeners will be familiar with by the time you hear it. But here's how things have played out a little differently. I want to tee up our discussion, uh, not just on the act itself, but on the response to that act. There seems to be near universal condemnation of this killing by all sorts of political and cultural players. The mayor came out and actually thanked the man who shot the video, uh, Fedin Santana. So he was thanked by the mayor. The police chief said he was sickened and actually broke down in tears. Senator Tim Scott, U.S. Senator, said that it was senseless and uh, we can't stand for things like this. Congressman Mark Sanford came out against this, Governor Nikki Haley, and obviously all the activists who've been traveling around the country uh, to shine a light on police brutality and, and various forms of police violence against communities of color are very up in arms about this situation. But that swift response is very different. Fadine Santana himself did an interview on NBC this week and talked about what caused him to come forward and express some concerns uh, about his safety. And then we've seen, you know, this is the same month where Chris Rock has come out completely independent of this incident, but very much uh, in the same space, taking selfies of himself when he gets pulled over by the police. Here's what I'd love to ask you guys straight up. Is it different this time? This particular killing, the reaction so far, do you think our conversation or our response as a nation to this will advance in any significant way or not? I feel like this could actually maybe be the place where we see the tipping point off in the distance behind something else. And we're, you know, I don't think we're close to it yet. But, you know, like the in Birmingham 1963, once they put the dogs and the fire hoses on the kids and it was on national TV everywhere and it was played in Japan, you know, there was a, a turning point in public opinion. This has been a crescendo since Trayvon Martin. Everyone yeah. has been worried and worried that it's going to die out. And it, the crescendo is just getting louder. In fact, at the same moment that this video dropped, we had the video from San Bernardino of uh, sheriff's deputies there just assaulting this man on, in a horseback wild chase. And also in Florida, a mentally ill man being shot five times by the cops. And, you know, 
sadly, you know, and Jay Smooth pointed out in his uh, video piece that he did that, you know, we have an official black box system for airplanes mm-hmm. when they go down and you need an official black box system for cops. But we don't have that. We have this sort of ad hoc system where if a random bystander happens to have a cell phone and you get a video, then you can actually begin to make change. And this video, I think, is far and away. I mean, the Garner video and the Tamir Rice videos were horrifying in their own way. But this video is like a notch above all of those to where there's just no way anyone could say anybody. Not only did he shoot eight times, but there's a pause before the eighth shot. Yeah. And that, whether it's on a subconscious level and you realize that's why it's horrifying, it's pop, 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 pop. And he, he pauses before he takes the last shot, which is, you know, kind of chilling. It's premeditated. Premeditated. Right? And, and then so, you see him plant something right, where yeah. something falls, and then you see his partner, who's a black cop, Right. Kind of like... Black cop, black cop. Yeah, exactly. That's what I, mean. I thought about that KRS-One song. <laughs> yeah. Right. And the minute he fires the eighth shot, he's on the radio going, shots fired, he tried to steal my taser. Like, he's already got, he's the, got the cover story. Yeah. It going in his mind. And, you know, no one can stand by this guy. And the question is, will it be like this moving forward or yes. will we backslide into more Eric Garner territory? And you know what, what you I was think, thinking? Yeah. I was thinking about Rodney King. 1991. Yeah. They, we caught that. That beating was vicious. And nothing's changed. What has happened is that I think more people are coming forward. Yeah. And then you look at the Garner footage, and then you talk to the people on Staten Island, which New York One did, and they don't see it as murder or a choking death. Many people saw it as the policemen having to defend themselves. Right. So ra- not only race, but violence, I guess, is in the eye of the beholder. And I, don't, I just don't think things are really going to change. And now that this new video has been presented... I'm not so sure that cop is going to end up going to jail. Mm. I'm not in really South, sure. In South Carolina, you don't think he's going to go to jail? I thought that, you know, the cop who killed Mike Brown was going to go to jail. Oh, I never thought he was going to go to jail. I think the South Carolina guy might go to jail, if only because it's such a way to throw someone under the bus and make an, exam- an See, example. I think it's almost impossible for this dude not to get convicted of something. Uh, I hope so. His own lawyer dropped him. The, all these people who are not from an activist community, Nikki Haley the governor of that state, very conservative. This is cutting across a lot of lines. It it kind of gave people a more perfect case, sadly enough. It's like he was a better victim, you know, and that, that footage allowed us to see it all play out. It wasn't word of mouth. Uh, we saw the dash cam vid- footage that started the whole situation. You could see that there was nothing, at least in that, that would lead to a shooting. We saw the actual act play out. So that was, for me, I think it's it's likely that some kind of conviction will happen on the bigger question of whether this will change. I th- I think it's another drip, a louder, larger drip in the bucket, but it's hard for me to believe that this one incident is going to really get us somewhere significantly further than we've already gotten. It's in the right, it's in the same direction. We're talking about mm-hmm. body cameras, we're talking about more oversight. We're talking about citizen review boards. So all that is good. What I would love to see, because I don't know if I will see it, but I'd love to see it, cops themselves. I really want to see police themselves coming out in opposition to this abuse of their generally good name, right? Like if you're an actual good cop, this guy just made your life so much harder. All these cases make things much worse. And we demand, you know, that Muslims come out and decry terrorism. When it happens, I want to see good cops being forced, ideally willingly, to be like, no, that's not me. But that's sometimes, not what we sometimes stand for. they do, but there's such a minority yeah. that they just get kind of like 
pushed to the side or marginalized, well, if here, you will. I mean, something really drastic has to happen. What I was saying before is that more people are going to come out. Mm-hmm. I think people are going to be less afraid to come out. Yeah. And this is what we saw recently with Laval Hall's mother coming out with the police in Miami who shot and killed her son, who yeah. she said, please don't hurt my baby. And so she said when she called the cops, she called the cops. Yeah. He's a paranoid schizophrenic. He's mentally ill. Please don't hurt my baby. And the police officer, you hear him just going, uh-huh, yeah, all right. And then the San Bernardino, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, that one was crazy. He's like on horseback and like six policemen come out after he's tased and handcuffed of all you know backgrounds, yeah. beating the shit out of this guy. Yeah, I mean, they, they. I think more and more people are going to be less afraid. I hope of, of coming forward. Of that. coming forward. Yeah. And what right. about you? Were going to say something about the cops? I well, think. the thing because I actually have a friend who is a black cop. Yeah. Uh, who does speak out on these kind of things, and he had twenty years on the force, and. You know, the way he puts it, or what I've learned from him, is that the cops are a paramilitary organization. Mm -hmm. If it comes down from the top that everyone's going to wear white socks on Thursday, everyone wears white socks on Thursday. When Bill Bratton came in in 1994 and to New York York and started Comstat and uh, went after the Dirty 30 precinct and went after corruption, like you may not like the direction that Bratton took the department, Mm -hmm. but when Bratton said the department's going this way, the department went that way. And he said he was great on corruption. Like corruption in New York City is nothing like it was 20 years ago as far as civil rights and stop and frisk. Eh, not so much. But when you have a paramilitary organization, if it comes down from the top, it gets done. If it doesn't come from the, from the top, it doesn't get done. And what you have here in South Carolina that's encouraging is you have this police commissioner who knows his ass is on the line. Yeah. And so as long as we're talking about individual bad cops and going after that or, you know, talking about social change and mass incarceration and vague terms, until you hit, it's almost like corporate CEO responsibility, mm-hmm. until you hit the guy at the top and he knows that he's accountable and his ass is on the line, it's not going to change. Is it trickle-down justice? It is trickle-down justice yeah. because they came in and with corruption in New York City, they said, no more, it's not tolerated, if you're a dirty cop, you're out. Yeah. And there's still some corruption, but like the systemic corruption that used to be is not there anymore. If you had a police commissioner come in and say, first civil rights abuse, you're suspended without pay 30 days. Second civil rights abuse, you're suspended six months. Third one, you're fired. Or you know whatever policy, then it would change. But it's not going to change until it comes from the top. Mm. What you're talking about right now, Tanner, is like the consequences of bad action. There's also a recruiting potential to get people in who won't be so afraid for their lives right. or, you know, so quick to uh, to be so deceitful. I mean, the, the, the speed with which this kid, Slager, this dude, was ready to lie, not knowing that he was being taped. That's the true ugly of this for me. It's like, oh, man, you were, it was second nature. It was actually first nature. But what was even <laughs> uglier to me was that his partner was ready yeah. to look like, I'm not in his mind, but he looked like he was ready to cover it up. Well, and that's the, that's that, protect the thin blue line, whatever, you know, the blue shield. What is it called? It's the thin blue line. The thin blue line. No, no, no. It's the blue wall of silence. There you go. The blue wall of silence. Blue screen of death. Like, you know, it's like Microsoft products have confused my mind with the color blue. You know what's so crazy? Like, in my neighborhood, for example, the people that I know that were either, like, self-loathing or a people of color or, like, the white kids that didn't like Latinos and black Mm -hmm. Americans all became cops. It's, like, the most... It's the, the mm. weirdest thing ever. And I have a, a, a neighbor who I try to befriend so that I can challenge my own yeah. m- perceptions about people in blue, right? And she kind of just ingrained them further. I don't know what it is. So my last question and thought was about your own experience with police. I mean, seeing oh. Chris Rock do his sort of public experiment 
of documenting certainly reminded me of the last time I was pulled over in a car by police was in California. And this is so, so long ago, but I called my mother and I just I wanted to be on the phone with someone while I was driving down the road. It's like, here's where I am. I'm near mile marker X. And this is before Twitter. It's I didn't even think to tweet it out. But there's something about that public testimonial of like, drop a pin. This is where I'm at. If you don't hear from me in five minutes or five hours, something's up. Any of you have any? Yes. Yeah. I've had numerous, numerous. Um, The last time, nothing violent happened, but my husband got a flat tire. Yeah. And we were waiting for somebody from the garage to come and give us some air until we got to wherever we needed to go to repair it. And two cops just walked by and I just got tense and I started shaking. Yeah. And they started looking at me like I was guilty of something. But I always go back to when I was in labor with my daughter, Jali. Um, She's 18 years old now. Mm -hmm. You know, I was living in Soundview for a little while and my, my, um, her father and me were stopped while I was in labor and I was harassed. And by the time I got, and it was a terrible story that I won't get into now, yeah. but by the time I got to the hospital, her heartbeat was so erratic wow. that I had an emergency C-section. And I was too scared to do anything or to report anything because yeah. I was taking care of her and it was all about making sure she was safe. Yeah. But wow. I mean, that was a horrible, one of the worst experiences of my life. Tanner, have so you I was been? in New Orleans. Yes. I was a college student at Tulane. And I wasn't home. But my upstairs neighbor came out, and a young man was exiting my window, my bedroom window, with my stereo. And um, he was just borrowing it, right? He was just borrowing it <laughs> <Yeah>. permanently. Permanently. <laughs> this was a young African American gentleman, and so I came home. Well, not so gentlemanly, if he was not not very gentlemanly. Yeah. Um, and so I came home, and cops were called, and they showed up, and they took a whole report. And then at the end of the uh, interview, the cop uh, told me, said, "You know." If you have any valuables in the house, you should really keep them in a book because they don't read. Ooh. Damn. Ouch. And that is zing. Zing. That is my sole lifetime experience with police. In your whole life. My whole life. Other than speeding wow. other than speeding yeah. tickets, but that's my only yeah. one. Yeah. There there was a there's a story that my uh that my sister told me of uh being with my father when she was quite young and uh the cops pulling him over. This is in D.C. He's in a car. They have some kind of moving violation or some reason to pull him over, yank him out the car, beat the hell out of him. And she's maybe seven years old, six years old. Beat the hell out of him. Then drag him away. Like they arrest him and take him away and just leave her in the car by herself as a single-digit age little girl in the streets and she just sat there for a very long time she eventually an old lady helped her out she was like wasn't supposed to talk to strangers but she knew something wasn't quite right and was able to make her way back home and and nothing worse happened but it's like that level of fear in the face of cops is very real from hearing that story from a thousand other little experiences and so seeing walter scott run (laughs) you know in that dash cam video understanding i understand that he ran yeah uh, i would have run there's just I don't know, it's, it's an there's an obviousness to the horror of this story. There's an interestingness to what happens in law enforcement after this. Is this more of a tipping point? Could you well, yeah, see? Could you see why he would run? Could you see? Why yeah, he would run? I mean, look, there's he he ran for reasons we can't ever fully know. It seems like right. he had you know outstanding mispayments on child support and missed court dates and fear is a powerful motivator. Um, and there's just such an obviousness to that not being a reason right. to be murdered. Uh, in such coldness, uh, 
with with no real legitimacy to it uh, in, a, in a case like this. And I'm right. just happy yeah. that it was it was captured. Yeah. And I yeah. want to give a shout out to Faylene Santana and also Ramsey Orda. Yeah. Good things happen when we coalesce. And Ramsey Orda, for those who don't remember, he shot the video of Eric Garner uh, being choked in Staten Island. Yes. And he's actually having some challenges now getting out of prison himself and there's bail hearings etc so well he, he made feels bail. very he made bail but he he's still is sitting yeah. as, right. as of right now he's still uh incarcerated uh and On waiting for those funds to be released because he doesn't trust right the police yeah i'm gonna wrap this we're done talking about walter scott for now we're certainly not done talking about this topic because it'll it will keep happening but hopefully our response will get better and better each time raquel Okay, so Kendrick Lamar finally released an album to Pimp a Butterfly. It's amazing. It's really great. I haven't read a lot of the reviews because I like to make up my own mind. Yeah. But for me, it delivered. Okay. It was a really holistic, well-balanced album. Kudos. And, but the real story is not the release of the album right now, but recently he um, announced that he is going to marry his longtime girlfriend, Whitney Alford. Yay. And I think it's so cool that he actually has the same girlfriend that he had since high school. But not everybody's happy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's been some really bad backlash, especially from uh, a self-professed dark-skinned activist by the name of Rashida Strober, who called uh, Kendrick Lamar a fake, conscious, coon-ass rapper, among other things. And uh, because he's marrying uh, this woman because she's light-skinned. So if he's, she's light-skinned, then that means he doesn't like any dark-skinned women and he hates himself and he hates dark-skinned women and he hates black beauty so anyway uh rashida strober set off like a firestorm online with people basically as she as she calls them trolls uh dissing her on her um facebook page and on twitter and basically you know calling her crazy crazy ass this that and basically you know dissing her for saying that kendrick lamar isn't conscious because he's marrying a light-skinned woman but then when i thought about it a little bit more um I started seeing where she was coming from. While I was personally hurt because I'm a light-skinned woman who's always had to defend her, her, you know, her otherness to people of color, you know, not black enough for, you know, black Americans, you know, you're not white enough to fit in white America. You're kind of negotiating this liminal space that comes with its own set of issues. But at the same time, we do have preference to say that we don't have preference, you know, light-skinned women are not preferred. They don't, you know, Jamila Lemieux had some really great tweets about this and I actually agreed with her. She said two things that really stood out to me. And the first tweet was, reminder that light women are more likely to be hired, married, get lower prison sentences. This is deeper than rap, no pun intended. And also being called, quote, not black enough hurts. But let's not dismiss light privilege just because that woman said something stupid on FB. Yeah, it was stupid and it was angry, but remembering all the people that I had grown up with, all my, you know, sister friends and all the shit they had to go through, I kind of see how she would be so angry, even though it's very divisive. And when people of color are divided, colonialism wins. You know, of course, she wasn't backing down and she responded to her quote unquote haters. And she presumed that they're all light skinned women, too, in a post called Message to Hating Ass Light Skinned Women Stalking My FB, which we will play a clip from right now. If you're really conscious, then you understand what the true essence of melanin is, okay? And so this is what got these haters all riled up. But, you know, like I said, you can get riled up, you can hate, you can bash, but you can't stop my mouth. You can't shut me down. And see, this is the reason why a lot of dark-skinned women who feel the way I do, 
don't speak out. And I'm not saying every dark-skinned woman does because I'm speaking for me at the end of the day. Well, she's speaking for her at the end of the day, but she's dismissing all light-skinned women. You know, I totally understand my light-skinned privilege. But at the same time, I feel like, come on, man, this is some, you know, Willie Lynch shit. Like, let's move past it. And also, Kendrick Lamar addressed on To Pimp a Butterfly, there's a song called Complexion, which he says, you know, dark as the midnight hour or bright as the morning sun. Give a fuck about your complexion. I know what the Germans done. Basically, he's saying, you know, we're miscegenated people because of the events that brought us here, right, to the new world, which part of it was the transatlantic slave trade. And, um, you know, but if you're light skin or dark skin, it doesn't make you any less black. That's what he's trying to say in that in that in that song. But she disagrees strongly. Well, you know, she calls him the fake conscious person. But from the lyrics of the song, which I mean, he's far more nuanced and, and, and thoughtful in his understanding of color than she is. So is he the, you know, but she's also he's also a man. Men get away with things that women don't get away with. Look, I totally empathize with her personal mm-hmm. anger and where she's coming from and no doubt what she's experienced in her life. But just the, you know, fire hose of hate that she's, you know, directed at these people that she doesn't know. And just, you know, she's the person who stands up at the Q&A section and hijacks the <laughs> Q&A for like 10 minutes oh, and just and never actually asks a question. Yeah. Like we've just taken someone's, you know, angry Facebook rant and we've turned it into a news item um, when I feel like, you know, whatever she's experienced personally is, you know, perfectly fine for her to, to talk about. And if you want to talk about colorism, like generally, like, you know, they take all these OK Cupid studies yeah. and they show like, you know, trends and who's dating who and like what that means for, you know, dark skinned women in general in terms of, uh, you know, relative, you know, privilege and power in society. But like once it boils down to the individual choices of Kendrick Lamar and Whitney Alford, it's the definition of none of your business. Like, you know. Yeah, but it's still very deep seated. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a conversation going on in the subtext of the conversation about colorism. That is very painful that we're going to be coming back to time and time again. And I want to ask you, Baratunde, okay, so what, you know, growing up, you like obviously were exposed to many different kinds of people. But as far as beauty, how did your your perception of beauty get kind of constructed? There's a um, there's a lot of subconsciousness to it that I probably can't explain because I'm just bombarded by everything else that we all are. I was raised in a conscious household with my mother being very pro-black, all-black everything. And and the rallies and the books and the kente cloth and the, the medallions with the African continent on it. And I actually, I held an attitude toward relationships for myself, which was like, I could never date outside of my race. Like that felt like a betrayal of my junior high, high school politics and, and, and race loyalty. That has definitely evolved. And my ex-wife is and was Caucasian. She's she was white and she still is white. Nothing's changed. Nothing's for her. changed. Which changes that we're no longer married, but it wasn't because of her whiteness that we're not married, as far as I know. So there was a uh, there was a period for me in terms of the direct answer to your question. Beauty was heavily defined by magazines and images and the women in my life who I thought were beautiful people. It was my mother and my sister who ranged from a bit darker than you to about your complexion. And no one listening to this can actually see that, but if you visit showaboutrace.com. And look at Raquel Cepeda's photo, you'll understand the, the color uh, wheel that I'm trying to paint for you now. And then it shifts over time in terms of who I'm exposed to and who I'm around. So what I found in my own world is that the, the barrier that I had put up to try to stay loyal through my heart and through my like, attraction to people totally collapsed when I had a crush on a woman who was not black. And I couldn't, I was like internally upset about it because I thought, 
I can't be a good black person anymore if I have a crush on her. Let's say her name was Wendy. It wasn't, but let's just for the sake of argument say it was. And my mother, I was who I was worried about, also judging me, she over our time also said, look, this is a much more universal thing. And you're lucky if you find any people that can share a level of trust and love. We don't have to add another barrier between that. So she became a bit more universalist on that. Um, so it, so her own ideas. Yeah. She was in the streets, down for whatever, yeah. in a much more sense. She would never come across as this woman on Facebook did. But right. focusing just on her anger does miss the opportunity to talk about this larger thing. Right. I think my mother's own shift, my own personal sort of pledge that I violated, quote unquote, when I was a younger person, expose a bit of that, that challenge of how do you represent you know, how do you stay authentic and real? And is it a prerequisite for representing blackness that you're only doing what with black people? Only having sex with black people? Only falling in love with black people? Only eating with black people? Only working with black people? What is the, the, the line that defines conscious versus unconscious? And is, is your physical attraction or your emotional compatibility some litmus test for that? Uh, I think not. I have my own feelings about this, too. I remember, you know, I grew up during the golden era of hip-hop where everything Mm. was, like, about social consciousness and stuff. And my father married a Scandinavian woman because he thought it was better. Because at that time, you know, in the Dominican Republic, it's not everybody. I don't want to paint broad strokes. Mm -hmm. But some people believe that, you know, the light is right. You know, we've been infected by colonialism all throughout the Americas, right? Dominican Republic is no different. So, you know, my father had, you know, this whole idea of, like, marrying this woman. He brought her to the Dominican Republic. Everybody was like, oh, my God, he made it. He made it. So that's why my grandparents allowed me to go live with him and her and be raised, you know, be raised in my hometown of New York City. And basically, you know, I looked at blackness always in a very different way. I always saw Dominicans, uh, black Americans, you know, um, East Asians mm-hmm. as being part of this diaspora. Yeah. So for me, my dating pool was larger, right? And I always had a problem not with people that dated, like you dating a white woman or marrying a white woman because you fell in love, but mm-hmm. because if it's because you want to better as we say in yeah, Spanish, blanquear yourself. or mejorar la raza, meaning to whiten or better yeah. yourself. That's when I have a problem. People are like, I want to marry her because she's light-skinned. That, that's not the right reason. Yeah. Well, and the real, the real insidiousness and question and challenge of it is very few people will say, I'm doing this because that's a lighter person. Just like, and maybe not just like, it's a little bit of a leap, but cops don't consciously choose to deploy their firearms more frequently for black and brown men and boys. The other thing I don't think people are remembering is that for someone as public and prominent with as much pressure on him, and they're calling him the hip-hop messiah, like he's up there with Nas and Rakim, to find anyone you trust is huge. And a a possible reason to keep her quote-unquote secret had nothing to do with her complexion and everything to do with this is like one of the a handful of people, maybe less, that he can truly trust and be himself. This person keeps him grounded. This person can call him on his bullshit. That is a priceless thing for someone in that very rare position uh, with all the pressure of the hopes of millions of people to to sort of uh, have in their pocket. And I think it says a lot about him. He's marrying his high school sweetheart. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's such cute. a cool, that's a, who very does that? cool that's, story. It's very old school. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, the one, one thing I would, would add yeah. as someone who has come to this topic of late, unlike the two of you who've lived it your whole life, you know, you spend, you know, you see all this anti-black racism that's out there and it's just brutal and mm-hmm. it's like nonstop. But as a white person, you don't see the intra-black racism. Yeah. It's just not really apparent to you uh, unless you... And 
once I started getting into this topic, started researching the book and looking more at it, the intra-black racism is just vicious yeah. is the word for it. Like anti-black racism is brutal. Intra-black racism is just vicious and personal and nasty in a way that is just totally shocking if you're not familiar with when it. Well, here's a, there's, you know, Raquel, you and I have talked about this before. There's some things you can already call that are going to be recurrent themes on this show. Yes. And healing, sort of post-traumatic healing from the system of mass racial oppression in the United States and in many parts of the world is this is a part of it, I think. This, there, the internalized divisions within communities of color betwixt each other, amongst each other, at each other, and other prepositions uh, around one another, uh, it's, it's deep. Yeah, and it's this really is, deep. This you, is a consequence of like ripping families apart and murdering people for looking at someone of a different yeah, complexion. Yeah. And like it's it's pretty connected. And and, and worse than that, it's tearing ourselves yeah. apart. And how can you coalesce with other people if you don't like what you see in the exactly. mirror? Yeah. So, you know, this is a topic we're gonna come back to over and over again because PTSD is something we have to work through. Yeah. Okay, speaking of stoking internal racial divisions. <laughs> nice. Nice. Nice transition. Yeah, this yeah, week, yeah. much like C. Thomas Howell, star of the classic 80s film Soul Man, Vijay Jojo Shokalingam, brother of Mindy Kaling, star of The Mindy Project, revealed that in the late 90s he decided to pose as a black man to gain admittance to medical school on the assumption that his mediocre grades and test scores weren't good enough to qualify as an Indian American, but that he could get in under the, quote, less stringent, as he calls them, standards for black Americans. So he shaved his head, he trimmed his lush, beautiful Indian American eyelashes, and he dropped his name and started going by his middle name, Jojo. And now he is out pitching a book called Almost Black about his experiences of two years in medical school, which he eventually dropped out of, of passing as black in medical school. And of course, leading us off that was the Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Blues Brothers version of Sam and Dave's Soul Man, a Canadian comedian and an Albanian comedian doing a little musical blackface, which will add a whole extra layer to the discussion on racial right. identification and affirmative action today. So... In the initial flurry of, of criticism and takes on this story, they basically, you know, tore him to shreds and revealed him to be kind of a douche and showed that his experiment didn't prove anything. Uh, because he only applied once as a black person, there's no control sample to show that he wouldn't have gotten in as, a, as an Indian American. Um, he applied to 20 schools, he interviewed at 11, and he only got into like a mid-tier one. So it's even mid. Right. It's lower tier. 67th, I think. Right. So he's actually proven that it's quite difficult to get into med school if you're black. Um, and he's really just shown himself to be a, a, not that great a guy uh, with what he's done. So his experiment didn't actually prove anything, and he probably won't get a book deal. Or let's hope he doesn't. But what? Listen, he can probably get a book deal. O'Reilly has book deals, and Coulter has a book deals. That's true. Yeah, no, you're right. Some conservative imprint will give him a yeah. book deal, and he's going to be the next Dinesh D'Souza. God bless him, and, you know, go for and it. Help us. Yeah. But what it does show is that there is an increasing amount of tension about affirmative action and the, as Raquel would say, increasingly non-binary landscape of race in America. You have Students for Fair Admission, this group of Asian American students that's suing Harvard and UNC, claiming that their diversity system basically amounts to a cap or a quota that limits the number of Asian students getting in. Last year, there was an attempt to overturn the ban on affirmative action in California. A group of Asian American activists mobilized and stopped, stopped them from overturning the ban to keep the ban in place. 
So the question is, can affirmative action, which is a tool conceived as a remedy for Jim Crow in a very binary America, is this a tool that can survive in an era where you have, I mean, racial identity is just changing every day. You have so many different groups. You have the lines between these groups being blurred. Is this a tool? Can it survive the kind of animus that we're seeing now with different minorities challenging it? Uh, I hope so. And I think so. And I think we have, you know, in the case of medical school, and I'll come back to Captain Jojo uh, later, but in the case of a medical school, you have a nation that is very unevenly served by physicians and medical professionals. One in 10 is the recent statistic of black, Latino, and Native American combined physicians in America. You have, you know, there's food deserts and there's also medical deserts. And there's so many communities that lack that level of much, much needed professional service. And that contributes to all the disparate outcomes that happen for various communities. So it is more nuanced and it is more challenging to go from a righting wrongs against black by white version of affirmative action to something that has more hues in the middle. But the idea of taking an affirmative step toward expanding the resources available to communities through access to institutions, to me, that still seems like a sound goal. And there's ways to work that out. It is not a zero-sum game. um, And we have to get to that better representation in some way, whether it's on police forces, fire departments, your doctor, your bag boy, your Uber driver. There's just some very, there's some value to it that's pretty well demonstrated. And our outcomes are still so far apart that we can't claim that the system left to its own devices actually works any better. We know it works badly. Right. Okay. But you just said the, and the, the one in 10 statistic was yeah. from the CNN. Or I heard other statistics yeah. that were, I mean, they were all abysmally low, but but there were a bunch of different ones. So you say one in 10 physicians uh, are, are black, Hispanic, or Native yeah. American, but we've had affirmative action for 45 years. So does that say we need more affirmative action or does that say that affirmative action is not getting us there? It probably says we need to try more things. Uh, we need to go upstream. We need to look at how the recruitment is done, how the placement is done. I don't know in this moment what exactly we need to do, but I don't think the answer is nothing. I think nothing would have... Well, no one's saying we're doing nothing. But, but, but looking at the, I guess, using Vijay's point, it's like, okay, great, so you blow up this thing. What's the replacement? You know, one of the many you know critics say is the problems of affirmative action is that it's not a radical solution. People forget that if you go back, colleges and corporations were actually out in front of the government on this one. There were riots in the streets. It was like, how do we stop the bleeding? How do we stop the fires? Let them into college. Give them desk jobs. Tie this off and let's stop this so that we can maintain the status quo. Yeah. The purpose of affirmative action, and this is one of the things that irks me about it, is that it's fundamentally wrongly framed in the way we discuss it. Mm. The purpose of affirmative action is not to help the minority applicant. The purpose of affirmative action is to protect the white institution. And if you understand it like that... It's a very different thing. And one of the unintended consequences, or maybe intended consequences, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, is, you know, racial justice advocates always say, we don't want a colorblind system. We don't want to be like France, where they don't quantify race at all, so there's no statistics, there's no Mm -hmm. categorization of what people have. We want race-based solutions based on these specific racial problems, Native Americans, blacks, etc. So, but the problem is, when you create any race-based entitlement, or any group-based entitlement, really, you create this problem of, if they have it, how come we don't get it? Like, you used to be able to, under the first wave of affirmative action laws, 
public institutions used to be able to give scholarships to a student just because they're black. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, we, we want them to get in. They don't have any resources. These are scholarships specifically for black students. That was sued and overturned in court, not by a white student who said it was unfair, but by a Hispanic student who said it was unfair, who said, if they get it, Me how too. come we don't get yeah. it? And now nobody gets it yeah. because well, the, the court because the court just rolled it out. And it, funnily enough, in South Africa, when they put in the black empower, black economic empowerment policies, which is kind of their economic affirmative action they did, uh, Chinese people sued yeah. to be black yeah. because they weren't considered black under the law. Well, interestingly interestingly right enough, yeah. Indians were considered black under those laws. So if JoJo wanted to go to med school, all he had to do was go to med school in South Africa and he could have been black. <laughs> but then also you had the most recent example, you had President Obama start this My Brother's Keepers mm-hmm. program. Oh, yeah. Immediately the reaction from black women all across the country is, if they get it, how come we don't get it? So... What you have now is you have all these spoils put in place for all these different groups, and they're all fighting over table scraps, really. Like, oh, we want these five medical school applications, and we get these five, and you get those four. Meanwhile, white people still have all the money. What are we trying to solve for here? We're not trying to solve for necessarily Harvard Medical School's admissions. We're trying to solve for having more doctors of color, more more coverage of medical resources in certain communities. We're looking to redistribute in not necessarily a socialist way, but increase the wealth of communities that have historically had it stripped from them uh, and mined and stripped again and mined again. What's, if the institutional access to the bank or the job or the university isn't it, or if it only leads to further fighting, what's working that needs to be scaled up instead? I don't don't know about specific policies, but the way I see it philosophically is that these racial gaps start with prenatal care unless you start over time early yeah. unless yeah. you mm-hmm. unless you if unless so, you should be able to put a black student an Indian student and a white student 18 years old on the same playing field and if you can't do that by the time they're 18 it's kind of too late to close the gap there's something that we're going to end up probably talking about later and how and talking about the womb and how yeah. starting as early as, as we can Toxic stress. Mm-hmm. So right. it, it kind of reminds me in a way of that three mile story that we No, it's exactly about three miles. It's the same story. It's basically. the same story. How do you help those kids? Well, look at the kind of self esteem that one guy had, right? Mm-hmm. Right. By the time he gets to school to Wheaton, he's too afraid, he's too ashamed, he's too self, you know, like he has a lot of issues with himself to be able to ask for help when all these kids that went to Fieldson are like, yo, man, the world is mine. Right. Whose world is this? It's mine. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm going to ask for help. I'm going to exercise my, my privilege. It, 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 here's, it, here's what else it raises for me is where the emphasis and the battle is. When Michelle Alexander wrote The New Jim Crow, one of her biggest lines of attack, and this is about you know, mass incarceration in the U.S., biggest lines of attack was against the civil rights establishment for focusing so much on affirmative action at law schools. She's like, we've been spending all of our capital trying to get a handful of people into these advanced degree programs to join the legal profession. Meanwhile, we've let a million plus of our people never have a chance at college ever, ever again and get locked up. And dest- the community destruction is so far outweighed the community creation in terms of value of choosing one battle over the other. And so it doesn't mean you just abandon the affirmative action thing, but it does mean as a mass set of like people trying to make the world better, you spend a lot more time on early education or prenatal care then you do fighting about medical school applications when you decide what battles, what you're going to fund as an organization, for example. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, shoot. So, like, it seems like Vijay, I'm sorry, Vijay, um, 
really had a really bad experience uh, during, you know, with his social experiment of being quote unquote black. Right. Um, he seemed like he was kind of whining through the whole thing. What do you think he came away with? I don't think he really, he doesn't seem to have learned anything. And I, I have to imagine it's been what, 17 years since he did this. Like clearly he, maybe he had some sort of roadblock in his life. It's like, well, maybe I could get a book deal if I, if I drag up this old affirmative action thing. Cause he, he hasn't, he didn't make an agenda out of it at the time. It, well, it's only now that his sister is famous. So he's clearly glomming onto that. Um, you know, again, I don't think he's really that relevant here. He's just some some guy. But what I do think is interesting is, like, as an Indian American, he obviously belongs to this, you know, he has some antipathy towards affirmative action. Other Asian Americans obviously do, too. And you, ha- you also have the dynamic where, to back to your point of misallocating resources yeah. and, and focusing on the wrong programs— you know, it's been shown that so many of these top-level affirmative action slots go to the son of the UN diplomat from Senegal, mm-hmm. who has three houses back in Senegal, and they come over here and they've got oil money or whatever. Yeah. And that kid is being held up at Harvard as diversity, which again goes to the point that it's about Harvard showing its diversity, not helping the lower-income brackets yeah. here in America. Is what JoJo did really substantially any worse than? the kid from Senegal taking that slot. Who was, who was basically pretending to be African-American. Right. Not, not as explicitly, but taking right. advantage of a program designed as redress for slavery and Jim Crow, to right. which he was not a direct heir. Well, again, that goes to the point. It was, yeah, not, de- it was well, not designed as redress well, designed, for slavery and Jim it was, Crow. It was sold as. It was sold redress. as. Jojo, yeah. Jojo, the difference between Jojo and the Senegalese uh, kid is that Jojo went in there with malicious intent. No, he yeah. was definitely malicious and douchey about it, but the end result is they're both... It, they, they expose the, right. the weakness of the program right? in terms of its effectiveness, in terms of its design. Often when you want to talk about affirmative action, as a black person talking about affirmative action, I'm just going to be defensive right off the bat. Like, I want to protect with the scraps. We got scraps, and I want to put, like, a barrier around it. Like, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work, but it's like it's something. It's like we just don't take that, too. I'd much rather have this version of the conversation where it's like, okay, but if it's not working, right? what else do we need to be doing? How do we allocate resources? And we don't obviously have all the answers on it, but, but I it's think, good to we, think out loud. we've gotten somewhere right. with right. it, yeah. you know, even in the, in the past 10 minutes. So, right. Yeah. I agree. I yeah. love this. Thank you. So let's, uh, let's bring it home. Okay. Now, finally today, yo, check this out. Uh, you guys, what is on your media radar tips and recommendations? Tanner first, what do you want the people to click on. Uh, I think everyone should go back and watch Soul Man. <laughs> it's an amazing time capsule of racial politics from the mid-80s. A, I mean, it's got Ron Reagan Jr. in it, right? Julia Louis-Dreyfus, she probably wishes she could take that off her resume. And they actually think that they're doing like trenchant racial commentary, yeah. you can tell, and it's just terrible. And what I would love more than anything would be like a Grantland oral history of Soul Man to talk to James Earl Jones and Ray Don Chong about what they thought of their roles in yeah. the definitive affirmative action blackface comedy of all time. That Whoa. sounds like something I'd read and or listen to. Raquel, what do you want us to check out? Uh, so I want you guys to check out Corey Kanash's uh, Facebook page. It's called Justice for Corey Kanash. And he's basically an original American or slash Native American that was shot mm. um, in Utah by a sheriff deputy. 
and um, his sister and family are trying to raise money for their legal fees. So if you want to go check out his GoFundMe page, it's GoFundMe.com forward slash Corey D. Kanosh, and that's C-O-R-E-Y-D-E-E-K-A-N-O-S-H. And the link will also be on our Show About Race uh, homepage as well as our Facebook page. So check it out. Boom. Uh, my Check This Out recommendation Uh, Students of color at Harvard University, we've just been talking about this topic, have launched a new publication. It's called Renegade Magazine. You can find it at renegade-mag.com. And it's a combination of like creative artist collective meets radical political reframing. Their first act, they say, quote, is to rediscover our identities as people of color on this campus by remembering our ancestors' courageous stories and dismantling the regime's of colonization and oppression still present at this university. So I went to this university. I've seen publications come and go. I've been a part of them when I was on campus myself. This is a nice update to some of those same efforts. And I just, that focus on the local history. What's been the role of people of color at Harvard? What's Harvard's history with colonialism, with slavery, et cetera? That's very deep. It's something the nation should be doing for itself. And I like that they're starting right where they are uh, and not just with professing but also with a lot of art uh, to help that pill go down. So that was our Check It Out segment, y'all. Just check it out. That's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. Our producer today is Audrey Quinn. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of the Panoply Network. And you can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. Follow along the conversation or join it yourself. Facebook.com slash showaboutrace, Twitter.com slash showaboutrace, all the things slash showaboutrace, or just email us, showaboutrace at gmail.com. For Raquel Cepeda and Tanner Colby, I'm Baratunde Thurston, and again, we will not stop until racism is over, so see you next time.